listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines on the 15th of February. The number of new COVID infections in Hong Kong topped 2,000 for the first time ever yesterday. Health authorities reported a record 2,071 new COVID cases, of which all but 19 were locally transmitted. The number of preliminary positive cases surged to over 4,500. The Hong Kong government has submitted to the Legislative Council's Finance Committee a request for a 27 billion Hong Kong dollar round of pandemic relief funding, which is expected to be discussed in LegCo this afternoon. The measures in the package include a one-off payment of $10,000 to all unemployed Hong Kongers, about 300,000 residents who previously earned less than $30,000 a month and have now been unemployed for more than a month will receive the subsidy of $10,000. There will also be relief measures for a number of sectors hit by recently tightened social distancing rules. In total, around 750,000 people and 67,000 businesses are expected to benefit. Taiwan said yesterday it would ease its strict border controls Business travellers will be allowed to enter Taiwan once again and mandatory quarantine for incoming travellers will be shortened from 14 to 10 days. Inflation in India broke above the central bank's threshold in January. Consumer prices rose 6.1% last month from a year earlier, driven by higher food and fuel prices. The Reserve Bank of India has a 6% tolerance limit for inflation. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Louis Coyce from S&P Global Ratings and Will Denyer at Gavacal. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith of CLSA. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US and European equities fell in volatile trading on Monday on fears of an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine. But stocks came off their lows after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said in a televised meeting that there was still time for a diplomatic way forward. The S&P 500 fell 0.4% to 4,402. The Dow lost 172 points, ending the day at 34,566. And as that composite index, which was up nearly 1% earlier in the session, closed unchanged at 13,791. The Pan-European Stock 600 index fell as much as 3% before recovering to close 1.8% lower. London's FTSE 100 was down 1.7%. Hong Kong stocks sank on Monday. The Hang Seng Index fell 350 points, or 1.4%, to 24,557, the biggest fall in two weeks. The Hang Seng Tech Index dropped 1.7%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index lost 1%, ending the day at 3,429. In Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex fell half a percent, taking its losses since its recent November peak to 22% and putting it deeper into bear market territory. Oil stocks rose in tandem with the surging price of crude oil. PetroChina gained 2.7% to reach the highest level since September 20, uh, 2019. 
The shares of bonds of Chinese, the shares and bonds of Chinese developer Genro Properties Group slumped further on Monday, despite the company denying speculation that it doesn't plan to redeem a 200 million US dollar bond next month. Its shares fell over 15% on Monday after crashing over 66% in Hong Kong on Friday, taking its losses since last Thursday to over 71%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose as much as 2.5% at one stage, the higher to the highest level since September 2014, and taking its year-to-date rise to over 24%. It has slipped back this morning, trading at $95.78 a barrel. Gold is at a three-month high of $1,871 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose seven basis points to 1.99%. And the US dollar index rallied back to a two-week high. The euro this morning trading at $1.13. The bucks at 115.5 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.35 and a quarter cents. And 10 Hong Kong dollars and 56 cents. And in offshore markets this morning, the Chinese yuan is at 6.36 versus the dollar. Bitcoin is trading at $42,500 right now. And around Asian stock markets in Australia, the SX200 is off about half a percent at the moment. Stocks in Japan are just, just open. The Nikkei 225 there is flat. The Cosby in South Korea is down about 0.2%. Futures markets indicating a decline of about 80 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Let's go and welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have with us Louis Coyce, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at S&P Global Ratings. Morning, Louis, and welcome back. Morning, Peter. Uh, also with us is Will Denya, US Economist at Gavacal. Always good to talk with you as well. Morning. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's start with Hong Kong and just a, a reminder of what the government has submitted to LegCo's Finance Committee. It's asking for a $27 billion round of pandemic relief funding. and It's due to be discussed in LegCo this afternoon. The measures in the package include a temporary unemployment relief scheme with a one-off payment of $10,000 to all unemployed Hong Kongers. To get that, uh, around 300,000 residents who earn less than $30,000 a month and have been unemployed for more than a month will qualify for the subsidy. Elderly and disabled care home workers will be offered a monthly subsidy of $2,000 for five months as part of the package. And there's also going to be relief measures for a number of sectors hit by recently tightened social distancing rules. In total, around 750,000 people and 67,000 businesses are expected to benefit. Louis, would you like to kick off? What are your thoughts on these relief measures that are being offered at the moment? Well, Peter, I'm afraid my, my biggest thoughts at the moment with regard to Hong Kong are really about this quandary or, or problem that we have, that we are trying to have the same ambitions as the mainland has in terms of uh, COVID uh, policies, but we don't have the capacity to do that. And so we are really, we're not taking the Western approach in terms of living with COVID, but we also are not able to uh, 
to you know to uh, to achieve the the mainland approach, and that is of course creating problems for society and also the economy. And that's why the government feels it needs to uh, soothe and it needs to dampen these these pressures by the uh, by, by the stimulus package. The mainland is offering help, isn't it, in a number of ways in terms of uh, testing, building uh, temporary hospitals. Is that going to make a difference? I'm sorry, but you know. The, the main difference in terms of the, the capacity to deal with COVID between the mainland and Hong Kong is really about uh, quick, you know, um, uh, quick diagnosis, quick, quick mass testing, uh, contact tracing. That infrastructure has not been set up right in the last two years as, uh, to the extent that it has in the mainland. So I'm afraid it's going to take – it would take quite some time and it would also unfortunately – take measures that in Hong Kong people are less comfortable with than on the mainland. So I'm, I'm, it, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a bit of a struggle in the coming months. It, do, it does seem to me there's some notable differences between what the mainland is doing and what we're doing here because in general life on the mainland is, is mm-hmm. sort of going ahead as normal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Schools are open. Children still go to schools. Restaurants are open. People can go out. It's only when a particular city um, has infections starting to build that then there's a severe lockdown in that particular area. But here, um, everything is grinding to a halt. Yep, that is uh, that that is a big difference. And yeah, you know, it is really uh, also showing up in in you know in the data on on mobility and and it's going to show up in the economic data. As you said, like there are at any point in time some parts of China where there are lockdowns, but at the moment there are no major cities in 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 a in a major lockdown, and that is also showing up in the uh, you know in the mobility data. Can I ask, is that actually a difference? Because, you know, Hong Kong is one city, not not the size of China. And so when there's an outbreak, China shuts down that city. Hong Kong's having an outbreak. Now, I'm not defending the, the policies, but I'm not sure that, I mean, China all the while has had very strict border controls. Uh, so to me, the, they're both kind of following a relatively similar path. I think the big difference uh, that Louis pi- highlighted at the beginning is the economy here is just very different from China. We are an international city in so many ways. Uh, we rely on imports mm-hmm. for food. We rely on the shipping industry. We rely on international finance. There's a lot of expats here. Um, and, you know, we rely on Chinese tourism. And so when we go into, you know, hermit mode, uh, it just totally changes the fundamental nature of Hong Kong. And I know you, know, you mentioned schools closing. And as, a, as an expat here, I can tell you there's a lot of people that are getting very close to the breaking point. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have already left, but, you know, now that we're going through school closures again, um, there's a lot of people that are just getting ready to throw in the towel and go to places like Singapore where they, don't, they aren't closing schools and they do have vaccine channels for tourism. Yeah, so there are differences in the in the type. Like, you know, Hong Kong is much smaller and it, it's one city. But I, I really think that in terms of how will the government you know, what is the way forward? Is there any path out of this? I'm afraid that the government is going to take, have to take some really, uh, crack some tough nuts in the sense that we, we need to look at the ambitions that you have. Are you able to achieve them with the infrastructure and policy apparatus that you have at your disposal? I, I don't really see 
how this adds up in Hong Kong. I can see, you know, we can, there, there can be big debates as to whether the Western, say the UK, US approach is, you know, uh, is, has, has cost too many lives. And we can have very good debates about that. But at least there is something that adds together. Like we can see a way out over there. The, the rest of the world is moving on. Unfortunately, Hong Kong will be in the current mode for I don't know how many more months. I mean, coming back to your point, Will, it's, it is true, isn't it, that mainland has never locked down a city like Hong Kong, which is so dependent upon uh, international trade and business, and it's an international financial centre. It's never locked down Shanghai in the way in which, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of suffering um, here. Uh, no, Will, you should go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it's... It, Hong Kong is just an unusually international city, so it, it, it hurts uh, more than most places when you lock it down. Um, as far as, you know, is there a way out? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have um, an inside track on, on what the government's thinking nor what the virus is thinking. Um, but I do wonder if, you know, right now, if there's going to come a point in the next few months where – we have so many cases and just this this dynamic zero or whatever you want to call it policy just becomes so obviously impossible that they have to change tracks where mm -hmm. i mean if if in a couple of months the majority of hong kong has had covid then like you know why are you still shutting down schools and whatnot just accept you know we've all we've all gotten it move on you mentioned that people are leaving do you think those people are leaving temporarily and will come back or are they permanently gone? And, and, and if so, what, what sort of permanent damage are we doing through this to our status as an international financial centre and business hub? I think it's changing Hong Kong. I don't know. I, I don't think Hong Kong is going to be, you know, a, you know, a, you know, go to dust or anything. Uh, but, you know, if you're a, a company that relies on foreign labor that relies on foreign markets relies on uh, business travel and you're thinking about adding employees in Hong Kong or adding a, a an office in Hong Kong or Singapore or somewhere else I mean, uh, uh, the only reason you would do Hong Kong is if you absolutely need the channels with the mainland that Hong Kong has that Singapore doesn't and so I think any company the only companies that I can see adding headcount and adding offices here are those that that are specifically targeting China. Everybody else is going to go to Singapore. And so I, I think to answer your question, um, you know, the people who were here just because it's a cool international city, not because they necessarily had to be here because of the connections to China, I think those people who leave are, are very unlikely to come back. Louis, what sort of damage is being done to the economy, do you think? Well, unfortunately, there is, of course, damage both from the, you know, domestic restrictions, which always at, at one particular point in time seems to be temporary. But, you know, we, we know that when we close down restaurants for six months, seven months, like some of them will not open, right? So there is damage from the domestic restrictions. And we also know that there is damage from the international restrictions that, that Will talked about. On, on your question, Peter, you know, do, pe do people leave uh, temporarily or, or, or permanent? I think it is a mix. Some people plan to just set up shop in, in Singapore. I, I know some of them. Unfortunately, sometimes when we make short-term plans, these plans become, you know, become, they, they evolve into a permanent move. So I think it is not a good sign if people are planning to, uh, ev uh, to, 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 to set up shop somewhere else, even if they 
think that that's going to be temporarily. Mm. I want to talk a bit about the U.S. economy, particularly as you're here, Will. Um, bond markets are signaling increasing concerns that the Fed uh, is going to derail the recovery from the pandemic by overreacting to severe inflation. The difference between two and 10-year yields shrank to 40 basis points on Monday. That's the narrowest gap since April 2020, and parts of the yield curve have now inverted, which traditionally tends to suggest uh, a recession is coming. And maybe the Fed is making a mistake. Do you think the Fed is making a policy mistake in this battle against inflation? And is, is the Fed going to win it? I disagree with that assessment. I don't think the bond market is pricing in a recession soon. Now, you know, do they think there's a high likelihood of a recession sometime in the next 10 years? Yeah, I do too, I think. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I'll take that bet. Um, but the, you know, if they were expecting a recession in the, in the near term, I don't think we'd be seeing 10-year yields rising. Uh, we'd be seeing them falling. And so what you're seeing is just the short end, two years rising faster than the long end. So I think really what they're pricing in is that the Fed has got to get serious about reigning in inflation. And the Fed is making it pretty clear, in my opinion, that they are serious. But if they're going to be serious, they can't just raise rates to 1% or 2%, can they? Because that's still highly accommodative. You know, when you've got inflation at 7.5%, the only way you can be serious as a central bank is by getting real uh, rates higher. So that means um, rates are going to go, have to go up a lot, lot more than what the markets are predicting at the moment. Well, we don't. No, I mean, the Fed doesn't know. I don't know. Uh, we don't know what the so-called neutral rate is exactly. Uh, it's a moving target and, and hard to estimate. I, I, I do think the Fed does need to make some significant tightening measures. But keep in mind that they're tightening in two ways. So one is on their balance sheet policy and the other is interest rates. And they've made it clear that they're going to do both. So obviously, they're already tapering off QE. Uh, now, you can call that less easing rather than tightening, but it's you know directionally uh, moving toward, toward tightening. Uh, and they're already starting to talk about quantitative tightening or shrinking the balance sheet soon after rate hikes begin. And on the rate hike front, they're talking about hiking rates relatively fast. Um, I mean, nobody thought, uh, I mean, I was one of the more hawkish people out there saying this, the central bank is going to be serious about inflation, it's going to have to be. And I didn't think we were going to be talking about 50 basis points hikes in March, which is, which is now Do you think that's coming? Uh, I think it's quite possible, yeah. Mm. I mean, a, a rate hike in March is, is basically already signaled. It's just a question of 25 or 50 basis points. Um, I don't have a super strong view on which one it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the Fed is, I mean, they started um, tapering QE sooner than people thought. Then a month later, they sped it up. Um, then we find out in the, the next minutes that they're talking about quantitative tightening and numerous rate hikes. I mean, the, the change of tune from the Fed over the last four months has been pretty dramatic. Louis, Louis, what are your thoughts? I mean, the market is certainly anticipating now that the Fed is going to get more aggressive in fighting inflation. I'm wondering, though, that what the markets aren't pricing in is that the Fed loses that fight. What happens if from here inflation carries on soaring and we get stagflation? Do you think that's a, a, a possibility? It's a possibility, but I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about what the market is showing us is that the market thinks that we will not get stagflation in the sense that the market thinks that we're going to have tons of inflation still in the coming months, but that inflation will come down and that it is not going to become a permanent 
feature to, to, to have high inflation in the U.S. That is what these long-term yields are telling us. And to Will's point about the neutral rate, it's true, we don't know the neutral rate, but we have our estimates for it. And my personal estimates would not be miles away from where the market seems to suggest they are in the sense that when everything is set and done about the COVID crisis and the COVID recovery and when all these prices and wages have, have adjusted, I don't think that we will have moved to a new world, a world where rapid rates of inflation are going to be with us every year, like time and time again. I think the old forces of secular stagnation are going to be impinging themselves and, and, and exerting themselves, and that will mean pretty modest growth going forward, pretty low inflation and pretty low interest rates. And to me, it seems that the bond market is broadly buying that kind of a story. Mm. But if it's wrong, I'm wondering if we're about to pay for, in effect, <laughs> 10 years of low inflation because the Fed carried on seeing that, printing money, printing money, creating more and more debt. Um, and maybe it's now that all that is starting to take hold and, and we are catching up on all the inflation that we've created over the past decade. Yeah, I mean, that's really the key question, right? And it's a huge call because we all see those price increases. We read about them in the statements of all these U.S. firms because it's especially a U.S. picture, right? There's one interesting aspect on, of, of all of this. Everywhere in the world we have uh, energy price inflation, but in terms of core inflation, that you know that the the products you buy and the, the subscriptions you have, that prices are being raised for those, that is largely a US story uh, at the moment. And it seems that the market and the Fed, but also to, I mean, somebody like me, finds it hard to believe that this will continue for many years, but we may well be wrong. And that is indeed the, the, the big question at the moment. Okay. Well, great to hear your thoughts. Thank you both. That's Louis Coyce, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at S&P Global Ratings. And Will Denyer, who's the U.S. Economist at Gavacal. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.24. Over in Japan, we have Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning, Jim. Um, so we've been talking about U.S. earnings season earlier. J Japanese earnings season is also uh, well underway. How's it looking? It's actually not looking at all bad. So uh, we're now basically done with the, uh, the earnings season, done and dusted. Uh, the first three quarters of the year, um, net profits were up 57% uh, year on year. For the, uh, for the quarter, um, net profits were 10% uh, ahead of, uh, of consensus. Uh, and companies have raised their uh, their guidance for the uh, the full year because uh, we've got a uh, a March year end in in Japan. They've raised mm. the uh, the guidance for the full year by another uh, another five percent. So uh, operating profits are uh, are now at uh, at all time highs. It's not a bad it's not a bad quarter. So the uh, the GDP numbers out today um, were uh, somewhat below um, people's expectations, but um, but I think the uh, the corporate profits was doing reasonably well. I mean, it's more than not bad. It seems excellent to me. I mean, 57% growth in earnings year to date, that, that's beating the US, isn't it? It, it seems quite astounding. Um, it, it's pretty good. I mean, obviously, earnings had been um, badly, uh, badly beaten up. Um, yeah, perhaps you could say that uh, in Japan, we've had um, much less of the uh, draconian lockdowns, of course, 
it drive us all completely mad. But to her, it's been locked down less than her, than many places, and to her, to a certain extent, life has has been able to go, uh, continue on. And has that been a big driver of corporate earnings? The fact that you haven't had the severe COVID restrictions that other places have had, like here in Hong Kong, and and also what what you are doing now, you're you're really dialing back and sort of learning to live with COVID. Well, I think so. I mean, to to be fair, I think the um, the strength in earnings has been um, particularly the uh, the globally influenced uh, part of the business. Mm. Um, so we can see that all the way through the um, the last year, it's the uh, the um, international demand related uh, businesses that have uh, have been growing better. Um, and still here in Japan, we've got uh, things like. Uh, Retail not so strong, and um, and the service sector um, still a, a little bit sluggish. But uh, yeah, it's uh, um, it, it's certainly not that bad. There's not that much to complain about in uh, in earnings season here in Japan. And, and, and uh, of course, the beauty of it all is that they're um, they're all absolutely awash with cash. So when mm. uh, when things open up, then we can look forward to the benefits of uh, um, higher dividends and uh, share buybacks and perhaps some um, some acquisitions. And, and looking forward, how, how does um, earnings growth look going forward from here? <clears throat> um, I, I think what we're going to have to deal with when we come to the end of the fiscal year, we'll have um, a whole load of fireworks with the, the company returning um, money to, to shareholders. But the first thing we're going to have to deal with is companies putting out uh, very, very timid guidance for the uh, the coming year, um, and what we're going to see as a result is that um, that uh, analysts will um, lose their confidence and uh, and drop their forecast. So, what we'll probably start off with is is sort of ten, fifteen percent to ten percent growth forecast for the uh, the following fiscal year, and then they'll start to uh, to pick up the numbers. Um, I, I think. People are not really appreciating the fact that uh, booster rollout will uh, will really accelerate from here. That um, that the border will be uh, unsealed. That uh, the government will be able to uh, restart its stimulus measures for uh, domestic travel. Mm. So I, I think we'll end up with much better than. Um, than 10% growth in the uh, the following year. You mentioned that companies have now got all this cash on their balance sheets, record amounts, and they're returning that to shareholders uh, through buybacks and through dividends. Are, are they also increasing wages with, with this cash they've got now, which is something the government has always Popular. been keen to do, hasn't to see? Uh, is that happening? Sorry, I lost you for just a second there. Are they, they what? Are, are companies using all this cash that they have on their balance sheet as well as returning it to shareholders? Are they using it to increase wages, something the government has been keen to see happen? <laughs> Great question. Um, it's a really strange thing in, in, in Japan that um, the focus is so much on keeping their jobs and they're so worried about that that they... Um, that the unions don't make uh, large wage uh, wage demands in a country like Japan, where the the working age population is dropping at a rate of about five hundred and fifty to six hundred thousand a year, uh, and already there are one hundred and sixteen jobs for every uh, hundred job seekers. Once we come out of uh, 
of COVID, then you're really going to see the uh, the effects of a, a tight job market. So my fear is that the uh, the wage hike, the worst scenario would be there would be a a, a tiny wage hike, and then companies would go straight into um, uh, lack of employees, and you'd be hit on both sides. I think. The, uh, the Prime Minister is working very hard to avoid that, giving tax breaks for, uh, for wage increases. Uh, and I think probably what we're going to see is somewhere in the region of to- um, total wage increases of, uh, uh, of about a couple of percent, uh, maybe, maybe slightly more. Nick, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again very soon. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 right now is down 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea is off about 0.6%. Stocks also sliding in Australia. The SX200 down half a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to fall 80 to 100 points or so at the open this morning. And in the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil a little bit firmer here in Asian trading at $95.78 a barrel. Gold is at $1,871 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning uh, at 8 o'clock with more Money Talk. Uh, COVID update is up next with Jim Gould and James Ockenden this morning. The weather forecast, mainly fine. Cool in the morning, maximum temperature going to be around 21 degrees and sunny periods tomorrow. Windy with a few rain patches in the latter part of this week. Temperature right now is 16 degrees, 83% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. A school principal says the decision to suspend face-to-face classes until at least March the 6th makes sense. Authorities announced a new record yesterday of over 2,000 cases with 4,500 preliminary infections. Dion Chen, the chairman of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council, who is also the principal of Yinghua College, said cancelling the primary six exam for allocating secondary school places could affect some students. But exams weren't safe. primary school to conduct the test for the assessment. So uh, I think same, same as like uh, what they are now doing for the suspension of the school, uh, the session made by the EDB is quite sensible at this stage. Uh, I mean, in terms of the safety of the students. An infectious disease expert, Dr. Wilson Lamb, says long delays in isolating coronavirus patients are making the SAR's COVID wave even worse. The hospital authority says thousands of people are waiting to go to hospital or isolation. It's setting up a hotline and preparing to open designated clinics. Dr. Lamb of Glen Eagles Hospital was asked whether the COVID situation in the SAR is out of control. It's not totally out of control, but obviously the increase in number of cases is varying. More importantly, I think the delay in sending people to high citizen facilities maybe have uh, contributed to the recent increase in December also because, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, most of people living in a small apartment and then uh, it's understandable that household transmissions could actually occur after one family member being diagnosed but not sent to ICE facility. So that trend is quite growing indeed. Hong Kong reported more than 2,000 cases yesterday. 
A study of rivers around the world has found potentially toxic levels of pharmaceutical drugs in a quarter of them. Researchers took samples from more than 250 rivers. Hong Kong's Kai Tak River was found to contain 34 pharmaceutical ingredients, the most of any of the waterways studied. Drugs used to treat epilepsy and diabetes were the most widely found at two-thirds of test sites. Rivers on every continent, including Antarctica, contain paracetamol, nicotine, and caffeine. John Wilkinson from the University of York in the UK led the study. These drugs are designed to elicit a biological effect. So the same mechanisms that they act on in our bodies are conserved in organisms that live in the rivers. So these effects can range from endocrine disruption affecting the reproductive success of fish all the way to bacteria becoming resistant to some of the medicines we use to treat things like infection. The news from RT.